right, good morning, friends. Again, we're going to go ahead and get started. Those of you joining us online, really glad that you are with us as well. Today we are starting a new series that I'm uh, particularly excited about because I'm kind of nerdy about church history and stuff. Um, but we're simply calling this series The Creed. Uh, and the reason we're calling that is not for the band, uh, as fun as that would be. Um, we are just calling this series The Creed. Uh, not specifically the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, although we will mostly be in the Apostles' Creed. Um, the reason for that, I wanted the freedom to dip into both of those creeds as needed for the next number of weeks. There are a couple of really important theological issues that are in the Nicene Creed or the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed that are not in the Apostles' Creed yet because of uh, history and the way it works. So you might be wondering maybe why we would do a series like this instead of our typical practice of just walking verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Um, we just finished 42 weeks in the book of Acts. Uh, we've done 50-something weeks in the book of John a while ago. Uh, and the reason for that um, partly is because I've already had a few conversations with some of you, more than one of you, uh, who are maybe a little bit confused or maybe a little bit worried uh, about why we would be doing this instead of just working our way through the Bible because we're Bible people, right? And we are. Uh, but first of all, I love that concern. I like that. I would. I hope that you would always ask those hard questions. Hey, wait a minute now. Aren't we supposed to be? Yes, we should. And I love the questions I've gotten so far. So let me answer it like this. Although it might feel like it at times, um, like today is going to be a lot of background and stuff. We're not preaching from the creed. But instead, think of it as using the creed to help us with a few things in regard to how we see God, how we see ourselves as part of the historic, global, little O Orthodox church, okay? Part of the thing we call the church in the, the history of the world, the Christian church. So let's just walk through a few background things. What are creeds? Uh, if you're from a tradition that didn't use them, or maybe you're from a tradition that did use them and no one ever told you why, uh, which is why some of you are like, wait a minute, um, let me just explain what they are. Um, wh what is a creed it itself? So the English word creed comes from a Latin word, which is credo, which literally means I believe. So the first two words you say in the creed is basically the word creed, I believe. So right off the bat, the, a creed is a statement of belief for the person or the people, and this is really important, saying uh, that particular creed, or uh, another category is confessions. Um, there's a church historian named J.N.D. Kelly. He defines a Christian creed like this. He says, a creed is a fixed formula summarizing the essential articles of the Christian religion and enjoying then, uh, enjoining them to the sanction of the ecclesiastical authority. So a creed is basically uh, setting forth the basic beliefs of the church that have been handed down to us by the church uh, throughout the earliest times of the church, which we have just, as I said, finished studying in the book of Acts. That's the very beginning of the church. And so this is very much in line with the idea that we see in Jude chapter 3, which calls our faith, quote, the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So what would most often happen... Uh, when it comes to creeds, is that when teachers or preachers would begin to stray and begin to question parts of the faith, uh, typically the parts that weren't as well defined yet, or nobody had thought of that question yet, 
uh, or the ones that weren't typically talked about as often, the early church leaders, we might call them the church fathers, would reaffirm the essentials in a way that clarified and honored the historic teaching of the church. And so if you're ever like, what makes somebody a Christian? What are the things that are the boundaries of the Christian faith? I would almost immediately point you to the Nicene Creed. If they believe those things, that's within the bounds of historic Orthodox Christianity. Now, the earliest creeds are actually in the Bible. Many of them take a creedal form. Uh, one of them we're going to hear about in a couple weeks is what we call the Great Shema from Deuteronomy 6, uh, which starts like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we're given this instruction, teach this to your kids when you're walking, when you're standing all the time. Just teach this. To, this is important. And so that's a biblical example of something that became for many people a creed. It's something we believe that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And we see that in the Apostles Creed, uh, that there's God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one. And so we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. There are some scholars who think that the Apostle Paul is actually using or quoting a very early creed in his words in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, when he talks about um, what is of, quote, first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to the apostles and many others. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7. There are those who think Paul is either using uh, or quoting what had become an early creed in the church. So the next background question then, after we kind of understand what creeds are, and understand I'm giving you a very, very uh, quick overview. Um, if you really want to learn about church history, just study the creeds and the councils, and you'll basically learn everything you need to know about the history of the church. But the next question to think about is generally how are the creeds used? How are creeds, what, what do we do with them? So here's where the idea of ancient creeds really can rub against our modern sensibilities or post postmodern sensibilities, wherever we are now. But in our day and culture, uh, religion is hyper-individualized. Uh, you know this, you see this, and all of us act this way sometimes because that's the water we swim in. Um, we are trained and discipled unintentionally or intentionally by our culture, kind of the air we breathe, to be consumers. And so we tend to think of religions, and particularly for us, Christianity, in much the same way. Uh, we have kind of like an a la carte attitude when it comes to Christianity. Uh, we, we treat the church, I was trying to think of a good example, and froyo came to my mind, frozen yogurt. We, we treat the church sometimes, or religion sometimes, like those frozen yogurt places you go to, and you get your bowl and you fill it up, and then you go to the thing and you get whatever toppings you want, right? Uh, or, or any of the fast casual restaurants that are out there now, Chipotle, you get to pick your bowl, you put your rice, you get your meat, barbacoa is the best, uh, and then you get whatever toppings you want on it, right? Many of us have ended up with something like that when it comes to religion, and without maybe realizing it, we end up with something that isn't actually even historic Christianity, but is some kind of weird form of religious syncretism where we've synced up things together. Uh, this has always happened throughout the history of the world. So don't think like, oh my gosh, we're the first ones. We're not. It's always happened this way. Um, and so we might end up, we got a little bit of the gospel, and then we got a little bit of karma kind of in there. And then just on top, a little light dusting of nationalism and voila, we've got a spiritual experience that kind of suits me, right? 
But for the early Christian church, um, the creed was never ever, and I want you to really hear this because it's really important, the creeds were never intended as an individual practice. The creed was a communal practice by a group of people. And beyond that, the creed is just something more, it's more than just a summary of what each of us individually believes. But I want you to hear this too, it's also a tool of accountability. This is where the idea of membership, of belonging to a group of people, whether that's formal membership or informal membership, the, the New Testament looks at the church as something that we belong to that we're a part of. The way I like to talk about church membership is I'm giving you permission to chase me down when I go astray. That's what membership is. That's accountability, right? And so a creed is a tool of accountability because a creed was for the earliest Christians kind of like a form of a public promise that we all kept together. So think about it. It's a way for us to be able to lovingly remind one another of what we say we believe, Because I literally hear you say it with me. Hey, brother, you are acting in a way that is in opposition of the reality of what you said, that Jesus is Lord of your life. Remember Sunday? We said that together in the creed. And this is what you say you believe. Dear sister, you are living out of a place of fear. And don't forget what we said last Sunday, that we have nothing to fear because As we say each week, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So what are you you living in fear for? See, it's a tool of accountability to say, hey, this is what we all believe together. So the very first creed, the Apostles' Creed, which is the one that we're mainly going to use for this series, because it's simple and it's short, uh, was simply a formula for baptism in its earliest form. Uh, There's a bunch of other creeds that you could get into. There's a book I would recommend to you called Know the Creeds and Councils. Real short little book. You can read it in one or two sittings maybe. It gives you really good history on this. But someone would simply ask the baptismal candidate a set of questions and they would answer. Think about wedding vows, right? The, The officiant says, do you promise this? And the person says, I promise this. So if you take the officiant out of that equation, you basically have a creed. And that's what's going on with the earliest creeds. And over time, those answers get formulated into what we now call the creed. uh, And that was used not just at the moment of baptism, but it also began to be used to teach new converts the basics and the foundational elements of the Christian faith. So think if we had a new members class and we just went through the Apostles' Creed. That'd be a pretty good new members class, right? Uh, It's a great way to just teach the faith. And because a creed is typically fairly short, especially the early ones, uh, they can be learned and they can be internalized fairly quickly. Uh, My eight-year-old daughter knows most of the words to the Apostles' Creed, which I view as a a win, right? It's It's almost a, if you've heard this word, a catechism. And so they become an important tool for discipleship. Creeds are also used, as we have been using it for the last number of weeks, in the liturgy of the church. Now, if you hear that word liturgy and you're like, oh, what does that mean? That word simply means the the work of the people. Uh, And so it just refers to what we do when we gather for worship. If you were to come up here on the stage, actually right here. Now, we call this an order of service, right? And it's a plan of what we're going to do today. Uh, But really, this is a liturgy. 
of what, the, what we're going to do. It's, it's the work that is planned for us to do together. So uh, one of my roles as the liturgist in our church or the pastor is to, I like to think of it like this, I'm a math teacher and before the students get into class, I'm going to put a bunch of problems on the chalkboard and then I'm going to help all of us work through those together. That's what the liturgy is. And so the creed became a part of the liturgy of the church when it gathered together for worship as well as uh, a way of uh, uniting the congregation in a common confession. Uh, some of us struggle with music, right? I know I like music. I've been playing music for a long time, but my wife is not like that. She's not in this room, so it's safe. Uh, she cannot keep rhythm. My mom is from South America. Rhythm's like in my blood. I like music. It's part of who I am. But not all of us connect with music in the same way. Now, we're commanded to sing, but a, something like a creed or a confession is a way that all of us, if you know how to talk, you can say it and you can connect with it and we can do it all together. So it became a really important part uh, of the church's liturgy together. Now, one critique and cards on the table that I think is totally unfounded of things like the creeds by those who are from the stream of Christianity that we are in right now, what we might call low church, right? I'm not wearing robes, right? Uh, we're not doing things real that feel like a ritual, although they are, they're just unwritten. Uh, but our kind of stream of Christianity says uh, that one of the things that's wrong with creeds and liturgy in general is that it can be too kind of elitist, it can be too ritualistic, it doesn't feel authentic, right? And I've always disagreed with that, I don't think that's true, but I found this quote this week that kind of, you ever read something that you're like, oh, that's what I've felt and thought for a long time, but this person put it in words, Here's what it says. Far from being a device of the ivory tower, the creeds were the way that the ordinary person, the tradesman, the farmer, could learn about and pledge their lives to the God of the Bible. So creeds are a really important tool for us. Now, we don't live in a largely illiterate time, right? Uh, that's part of why we don't put pictures up on the glass in our buildings, because most of us have been exposed to basic education. Uh, that's basically thanks to the church, by the way, in history, but that's another sermon. Uh, and so many of us have wondered if creeds are still worthwhile. Why would we do this when we can just read for ourselves, most of us? As my last bit of background, before we get into the small section of the creed for today, let me just give you three things that the creed, I think, is good for, even in our day and age. So the first thing that uh, the, the Apostles' Creed or many creeds help us with is, again, just to summarize our understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to him. Secondly, the creeds help us with clarity in that. Uh, those who are responsible for the way the creed is formed had to get these big ideas about God into a simple form that anyone being discipled into the way of Jesus could understand. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, that's a, there, there is a 12-week sermon series in just that idea of God being Father and Him being creator of heaven and earth, right? But it's concise, and the last thing that I hope we see in this series is just the reality of the historic community and wisdom of the church. In our stream of Christianity, many times we are disconnected from that. We kind of think it's like uh, us, and then there was like Billy Graham, and then there was Paul, and then there was Jesus. And like we miss this whole history of the church and all these, this theological development that's really, really important for us. 
Now, you may uh, have heard me say this earlier, but we are part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. Uh, what that means is that we are not an autonomous, independent church. By, con- by our constitution and bylaws, we are not independent. By being an alliance church, we have submitted ourselves to a greater and a bigger body of Christians who have a like mind as we do than just our local church. And one of the things we talk about in the alliance is what we call, we refer to it as constituted authority, meaning all alliance churches have basically the same constitution and bylaws so that we are all bound together in that way. It simply it means that we all agreed to be in submission to one another as alliance churches and that we realize that we're not self-governing uh, in, a, in the big sense of the word. We are self-governing, but uh, instead we're part of a bigger family. So I think this is a good example of why the creeds can still be value to us. They don't have authority in and of themselves. The creed is not authoritative. Even the Nicene Creed, as important as it is, it only derives any authority from the reality that it is based on and, and delivering to us God's word. It is based on the scriptures. It is just dripping with the Bible. But at the same time, we can also see that many, many, many very wise and godly men and women helped to shape and craft the creeds that we have so that we would have a simple, clear, wise, communal summary of our faith. Uh, John Webster, a theologian, said this, We may think of the creed as an aspect of the church's exegetical fellowship. Exegetical meaning exegeting the scriptures, a way to learn and study the scriptures. We may think of the creed as an aspect of the church's exegetical fellowship or learning alongside the saints and doctors and martyrs how to give ear to the gospel. Creeds are not dogmas imposed on scripture, but they are themselves drawn from the Bible and provide a touchstone to the faith for Christians of all times and all places. Okay, so that's a very short background on the creed itself. Uh, And so for the rest of our time, I just want to cover the first line in the Apostles' Creed. Now, I said this already, but the Apostles' Creed is the oldest creed uh, that we know of in the church. And it's named, this is kind of interesting, based on a tradition that kind of emerged in the 6th century that each of the apostles had contributed one part of the creed, and so it's written by the apostles. That's not true. Uh, That's not why it's... Uh, That's not true of the creed. That's just tradition. Uh, And instead, the Apostles' Creed, think of it as a summary of the teaching of the Apostles. That again was used by the earliest church for baptismal rites as well as simply a tool of teaching. Now the very first words of the creed are, I believe. That's that Latin root of credo. So here's what we want to think about firstly. Who is the I in in the creed? This is a paradox for us, because we read I and we think, me, individual. Although that word signifies an individual, in reality, when we say that word in the creed, we are placing ourselves into the church that we refer to later in the creed. And so uh, we, we say later in the creed, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And so in a beautifully gospel-centered way, when, I, when we say I at the beginning of the creed, we lose ourselves into the family of God. And that's a beautiful thing. It doesn't mean you totally lose your individual personality or who you are, but it means that your meaning is found as part of God's family. So here's an example. 
in past generations, wedding vows were pretty much all the same, right? At least in like kind of the culture we are in. They're all essentially the same for many, many, many generations. And then in more recent generations, it has become more and more common to write your own vows because our culture overvalues individualism. And so that gets reflected in everything, even things like wedding vows. And now here again is a paradox and an irony, right? In many cases, and you know this to be true by your experience, I would guess, the more you try and individualize something like wedding vows, the more they are in danger of becoming trivial cliché. And so you become a victim of your time and your place in history and your vows can sound, ironically enough, just like everyone else's who tried to sound unique and authentic. And they lose the weight of the beauty that they've been the same forever. So here's a hard reality for us to swallow as the hard individualists that we tend to be. The truest and the most important words that you can say are never individual words. They are communal words. To speak the words, I love you, mean very little if you speak them alone. They basically mean nothing. But to speak those words in a relationship with another person, they mean everything. Whether that be a deep friendship, whether that be to your spouse, whether that be to your siblings, whether that be to your children, whatever that means, whoever that's for, those are communal words. And when you say, I love you, you are losing yourself into that relationship. And that's actually beautiful and good for us. Most of the words that we speak and we write, especially now we write a lot of words, in our lives are fleeting and trivial, right? Most of the stuff we say is like, doesn't mean anything. You know, we're just like, where do you want to go for lunch? Did you eat yet? No, did you? What do you want to do? Most of our conversation, we I'm talking so much the last couple of days about the Orioles and how exciting that is. Sports are totally meaningless, right? And that's why we like them because we can just kind of go into fantasy land for a while. And then those of us who like sports make fun of people who like fantasy novels and stuff, as if that's more nerdy than sports, but that's a whole other thing. Right? So most of my words are not very important. But the creed invites us to say true words that have been time-tested and into which my I becomes the I of the communal body of Christ. Understand, when you say I believe at the beginning of the creed, you are speaking with the voice of the body of Christ, his church, that has said I for thousands of years. And so you lose yourself in that body. And in losing yourself, what does Jesus say? You want to find your life, lose it. And this is a way for us to practice that. And in that moment, my words are deep and they're rooted in something far greater than me. But what comes next, right? I what? I believe. Okay, so here we're going to get to the Bible. If you want to pull a Bible out, Romans 10. I'm going to uh, just read a little bit from Romans chapter 10. This is what it says in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Some of you likely have this verse memorized. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what that verse says. Seems pretty plain and simple, right? But we have to pay attention to verse 10, 
which is massively important. And this is what verse 10 says in Romans 10. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So there's two pieces here, and it's important that we see and we understand and we we grasp both of them so we can really get a hold of this idea of belief. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. What we have here is a confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, that is a type of a pledge of allegiance. Now, when I say the phrase, the pledge of allegiance, you and I, if you were born here especially, are likely thinking as Americans of that thing that we used to say before school started, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. I'm not going to say the whole thing. Some of you are like finishing it, right? Again, those are what? They are communal words. The I there is not just you. In which we lose ourselves when we say that I at the beginning. Now, for some of us, the fact that I stopped in the middle is kind of bugging you, right? Like, hey, wait a minute. Why? Because you have all kinds of actual lived experiences and ideas, many of them good and right and beautiful. This is not a critique. You have many, all all kinds of actual lived experiences and ideas tied up with the words in that creed, if you will, and that's what is important. For that pledge to be meaningful, it can't just be words. In fact, if we think someone is saying the Pledge of Allegiance without meaning it, we get offended, right? Because they're saying it without belief, So now back to the text in Romans. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of my life. My allegiance ultimately is to Christ. So as a Christian, I might say the pledge to the United States. And I put my hand over my heart when the national anthem is played. But my ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. My confession is that Jesus is Lord. Lord of my life. And hear me, this is what got the early church martyred in the Roman Empire. If you said somebody other than Caesar is Lord, that was incredibly, incredibly offensive. So then inevitably, there are those who hear this and want to react like this, right? Oh, I I believe in Jesus. I'll confess it right now. Jesus is Lord. I'm good. I'm saved. That's what the Bible says, right? Now, if that's you, I just want to, again, keep reading the entire text that we read from Romans. Look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So there's an order there. In the first part of the text, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. But if you look at the context of the scripture there, here's what you find out. What does it not say? It does not say the word no, K-N-O-W. It says the word believe. It doesn't say I understand. I know that Jesus is Lord. It says I believe that Jesus is Lord. And allegiance is tied up in that. And this is super important because the reality is that true belief will always lead to a rearranging and a reordering of priorities, which will always lead to a reordering of actions in your life. So the kids aren't in here. And so I'm going to give you an example I hear a lot. And some of you are like, hey, wait a minute, that was from our conversation, because it was. Okay, I've heard this from more than one set of parents. 
uh, because I'm around other young parents, right, that are Christians. This time of the year, there's always a few Christian parents who have the, I want to say this, absolute best of intentions. They love their kids. They love Jesus. They're good parents. And when it comes to the conversation around Santa Claus, right, I have heard this so many times, it goes like this. I don't want to tell my very young kids about Santa because then they'll find out that he's not real. There's no kids in here, right? That he's not real. And then they'll think anything I tell them about Jesus is also not real. And that's a very real concern. Now, first of all, I love the desire to raise our kids in the Lord. I really do. All the parents I've ever heard say this, love their kids. They want them to know and love Jesus. That's their heart in it. So they're good parents, right? But here's my response to that. Belief doesn't actually work that way. I hope that your kids are not seeing you arrange your life around a weekly meeting of other Santa believers, give money so that someone can teach them about what Santa has said to them, and also give money to send other people across the world to share the gospel of Santa, and also totally rearrange their morals and their ethics and their lives around the teachings of Santa, right? Nobody does that. Maybe for like two weeks in December. Because why? We don't actually believe that the character of Santa Claus is real. St. Nicholas, real guy. But Jesus, right? Oh, we believe in Jesus, right? We believe that he is real and we believe that he is Lord of our life. And so what does that look like? We arrange our lives around meeting together every week with other Jesus Believers, we sing songs to Jesus, we pray to Jesus, we read about Jesus in the text that Jesus gave us through his Holy Spirit, and we give money to send other people around the world to spread the gospel of Jesus, and we completely rearrange our ethics and our morals around the teachings of Jesus. Right? So you see the difference, right? Now that's just an example. If you don't want to teach your kids about Santa, don't. But that's just an example. That's why the word here is to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Not to know it or to think it, but to believe it, which according to the Bible here leads to justification or right standing before God, which then leads ultimately to a confession with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We don't confess with our mouth and that save us. Otherwise, that's an incantation. Right? You saying the creed in here every week will not save you. And it will not make things go right in your life. And it will not stop bad things from happening in your life. That is karma. And that is not what we believe. Saying the creed does not and cannot save you or do anything for you on its own. We believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. And that leads to confession with our mouth. Right? We all... We all know that before you ever said, I believe in Jesus, you believed in Jesus. You can't say it for real and not actually have it be real. So you were saved before justified before you ever confessed it with your mouth when it was real for you. That order is absolutely imperative for you to understand what the gospel of Jesus is. It's important that he's saying you believe, not that you think or know. It's the heart that has to believe, not just the mind, because that would be knowing. Belief is birthed in the heart. Belief is about trust and love. The reason the creed begins with I believe and not I know is that the creed has tied itself and anchored itself to the gospel of Jesus. All other moral religions tell us, 
Here's the ladder you have to climb. Good luck. Climb it. And I don't care if that's a religion that even thinks it's a religion or a philosophy or a dogma that people look at religiously. You have to climb this in order to attain whatever your idea of heaven or the good life is. Any of the world's moral religions, even philosophies are living, are saying, here's the ladder, here's the 12 rules for life, right? Follow them and then you get the good life. And some of you might even think Christianity is like that, right? So many times in my own personal conversations with people about the gospel, when the subject of Jesus or the gospel comes up, people will inevitably say something like, oh, well, when I get myself together, then I'll come to church, then I'll come to Jesus. But friends, if that's what you think, you will never come. You can't. That's the point of the gospel. You just come now. There's an old hymn that says, if you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. So just come to Jesus. We're constantly being told that when it comes to God and spirituality, it's right actions first, and then we can come in. But that is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. In fact, the moment Paul teaches this to the church in Rome and really across the ancient world, he separates Christianity from all of the other world religions by not starting with, here's what we do, but rather starting with, here's what we believe has been done for us. So the message of the Christian faith is not that we have done or will do anything, but rather that we have believed that somebody has on our behalf and that somebody being Jesus. That's the difference between the Christian message and all the other moral religions. And it's why our hearts as believers in Jesus are made more and more alive when we do things every week like recite the creed and pray together and sing songs and hear God's word and come to the table at communion. Doing these things are simply the avenues by which the reality of our belief can express itself. And that's why the creed is such a beautiful and a meaningful gift to us from the early church. Like music is a gift to us from God to do something with that thing inside of you that words can't quite get out when you want to express love for God and he gives us song or creed or prayer. And so to close today, what I want to do is just recite the creed together and invite you to do that with me. So why don't you stand? If you can, and we'll recite the creed, and then I'll pray, and then we'll take a little break. Uh, if you're new with us, our kids come back in, and we take communion together every week. And so uh, after I pray, there'll be about a five-ish minute break. Kids will come back in, and then I'll invite you to get the communion elements, which are at the back of the room there. But for right now, let me invite you to say this creed along with me, and then I'll pray to close us out. Let's say this together. I believe. Of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus.
we thank you that you are worthy of being Lord of our life. Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd, you are our savior, you are our Lord, you are our teacher, and you have even called us your friend. And so as we spend these next few weeks uh, looking at what our brothers and sisters in the history of our church uh, and in your church have, have put down on paper for us as summaries of the apostles' teaching, we pray that it would drive us not away from the scriptures but deeper into them. To, to ask questions and to discover more and more the depths of your gospel. And so we thank you for, again, bringing us here today and giving us this space that we can have this conversation in. And we ask that you bless the rest of our few minutes together this morning. Amen. <laughs>